0: Welcome to the Dr. Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis.
1: Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We are not healthcare professionals. We are chronic pain and illness patients who became advocates after having bad experiences in the healthcare system. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.
0: I'm here to tell you about my experience with the Don't Punish Pain Rally group highly positive. I spoke with Bev Sheckman before I went into my last pain management appointment and actually came out with a new pain management doctor that didn't judge me or malign me or tell me that they couldn't help me. Bev coached me um, about a week before my appointment took place and she didn't charge me any money, not a penny. I don't know where that rumor is coming from, but please don't believe it. The Don't Punish Pain Rally group is here to help you.
1: What you just heard is from a chronic pain patient named Shannon, who graciously left us a positive review on TikTok. Shannon had reached out to me because she had an upcoming appointment with a brand new pain provider. And like most of us, she was nervous. She wanted to know some tips and something she could do to prepare for this appointment. Shannon and I were able to connect and I was so thrilled to hear that things went well for her and she found a compassionate provider that she felt she controlled. This is an excellent introduction to this podcast because it's exactly what we are speaking about today. Claudia and I will be right back with this information.
0: Welcome to this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. I'm Claudia Mirandi. So Bev, you wanted to do this podcast because this is a super important issue for people. Pain patients, they've been left to suffer and they are desperate to find a new provider. And oftentimes that first time they meet with that provider can be filled with nothing but angst, anxiety, driving to the visit. Today, we're going to offer you folks some tools, preparation for your first visit with your hopefully new pain management doctor. As
1: we've said before, as most of you know, by now we have stopped advocating one-on-one for now because of some of the things going on in the pain community and just not feeling safe doing that. But one of the more common questions I do get that I I did used to talk to patients about one-on-one was that very thing that you just said. I have a new pain management doctor or primary care doctor appointment. And I just need to know how do I prepare? What can I expect? What should I do? Kind of some general ideas of just how to make it the best appointment it can be. Before we even get into that, I want to talk about what are some of the more common reasons that a chronic pain patient would lose a doctor and then need to find a new one. So I, I made a little list of some of the more common reasons that I've come across Obviously, the first one is if a doctor retires, the doctor passed away, or the doctor moved. Another one is if a doctor is investigated. Often, if a doctor is investigated, you know, the doctor ends up having to close, or they dismiss all their patients, and they're kind of left out there with no provider at all. Another reason is if a patient so-called failed a urine screen or pill count. Now, I want to say with this, a lot of the, the... people who have contacted me when they've failed a urine screen, it really wasn't failed. Like sometimes the doctors don't look into it. Sometimes it's a lab error. Sometimes it's an error at the doctor's office. Sometimes the urine gets mixed up when they have a whole bunch in one area. So often they're just dismissed for that. Well, That's,
0: that's gross, right? I remember going into the urologist with kidney stones, and all these little old men were waiting, God bless them, in the waiting room. And when I I went in the ladies' room, there were all little cups of urine. Right. And I went out and I said, yo, I am never leaving (laughs) my (laughs) urine specimen with others. And if you're tuning into this episode, never, ever, ever leave your specimen with other specimens. Not to mention, it is disgusting. I know. Like,
1: sometimes-
0: didn't a pain patient take a picture of it for us in one place? And there were like
1: 12 of them just piled on top of each other. Yeah. And I mean, that should never be happening. It really shouldn't. But even if you do follow the chain of command, and you make sure your name is on there, it still can get messed up. It urine screens have such a high risk of being inaccurate It was so much so that even, even with the first CDC guidelines, they were like, well, you shouldn't, make decisions based on a urine screen, and there really isn't evidence for it. And then for the updated draft, they they removed it from, I think it was every three months to even suggesting just once a year. But that doesn't happen because you know the DEA and state medical boards, they do their thing and doctors are afraid and they feel like they need to still do these urine screens. And the reason why doctors are dismissing patients with a so-called failed urine screen is because they're afraid of the DEA and state medical boards. Because a lot of times, if a doctor has a patient that looks like they failed a urine screen, looks like maybe a, a negative, even if it was a false negative, meaning they could be diverting, and they don't dismiss the patient, you know, they can get in trouble for that. And when we had Ron Chapman on, we were talking about um, documenting. And this is why it's always a good thing. If a doctor has a patient with a failed urine screen, they need to figure it out. They need to document, they need to talk to the patient, but please just don't dismiss them because of it, because that just leaves a mess.
0: The guy who does my uh, Botox, he's also a Suboxone doctor. He never discharges patients, never. And he's like, oh, I give him three or four or five chances. But Five chances. Oh, my God. A pain patient. One failed urine drug test and they're booted. And if you're listening yes. to this, if your lab that you send that your doctor sending your specimen off to, if that machine is not cleaned after every drug test, that's going to throw off your you're going to have a false positive. All right. So we digress. Let We're going to get back to how to prepare for this first visit. So Bev, you made a list of what these people can do to prepare themselves.
1: I I feel like we need
0: to address the fact that
1: it's very, very difficult to even find a new provider. So if you're able to get an appointment with a new doctor, you're already ahead of the game regardless of why either you were dismissed or, or whatever reason what left you without a provider, it's extremely difficult to find a new doctor for so many reasons. Like if a doctor was investigated, how many patients have we heard from that their doctor had been investigated They call new doctors to see if they'll take them and they're told we're not taking any patients from that provider. There's several different reasons why doctors won't take a patient. Just like that, doctors are afraid. There are two other reasons that that I've come across and this leads us to our very, very first step one of what to do when you have a new doctor's uh, appointment. You know, there's PDMP, this prescription database, these metrics that these state and federally they use. And these metrics from PDMP can cause problems for doctors in a couple of ways. The first is sometimes payers or medical boards. An investigation can be triggered based on plain metrics in the PDMP, such as if a patient has over 90 MME or over 100 MME, or if the patient travels a far distance to the provider, or if the patient gets a benzo and an opioid. So sometimes a doctor will be reluctant to take a patient because they know if they take this patient, most likely it will trigger an investigation. And I don't blame them for not wanting to take the patients for that reason. Another problem with these metrics is these PDMP risk scores or metrics often include something called NarcsCare, which is a program from Bamboo Health that is used to spit out several different risk scores. One is called an overdose risk score. That is a proprietary algorithm so nobody even knows necessarily what's in it. We are having an episode coming up about Narc's care which I'm extremely excited to bring to you. That's the first reason why sometimes a doctor would be leery to even take a patient. The next reason is There is something in your electronic health record that you don't even know about that these doctors will see, and they don't want to take you because of it. So this is why when you do have an appointment with a new provider, the very first step is you need to have all your medical records. You need to request your medical records from your previous provider, especially if you were dismissed. You need to know what they're putting in there. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. We have a whole link on our website about how to get electronic health records. But I'll just briefly go over it. First, call the doctor and ask them if they could send you your medical records with the doctor's note. But sometimes if you've been dismissed, they don't want to do that, even though by law they have to. So if that's the case, we always recommend... Sending a letter, certified mail, acquiring a signature receipt so that there's evidence that you requested these records with the doctor's notes. From the time they receive that request, they have 30 days to get you these records. They can charge you. We also have in the link that we'll put in the show notes per state what the limit is of what they can charge you. But if the doctor's going to take more than 30 days, they need to let you know that they need 30 more days. And then that 60 days total is their limit. Even if you're just looking for a new doctor now and you've been dismissed, that's always step one have these medical records, know what's in there. So you know what you're going to address with this new doctor.
0: Yeah, you know, I think if I found a new pain and pain management doctor, the very first time I would go, I would have to have all of my records. And that can even be daunting. So you explain to the people how they can get their medical records. Yeah, Now, I will say next week, we have a prescriber on a friend of mine. I have not invested in a pain clinic because I am deathly afraid of going to prison. (laughs) And I've had this conversation and I almost feel like the DEA is gunning for me to invest in a pain clinic. But I'll tell you what, there are some red flags that I look out for. Let's just say I do own a pain clinic because now that it's out there, people will automatically run with it. And not only am I an undercover DEA agent, (laughs) I now own a pain clinic. I'm saying, what if I did? So there are things that I'm going to be, I'm going to have a watchful eye out for certain types of behaviors from patients. So what Bev and I are going to do, we're going to play good cop, bad cop. So Bev, you come into my office. I now own a pain clinic and you've got your medical records. And I appreciate that because I need to document that you are indeed who you say you are. Because let's not forget the Blue Blue Cross has sent in agents posing as patients or drug dealers who are trying to make a deal and they are being sent into clinic. So I need to know that I'm safe and you're safe. So I'm going to sit down with you. You're going to give me your medical records. Now, remember, I cannot prescribe you any controlled substances on the first visit. I have to do a urine drug test to make sure You don't have anything in your system that you should. You are the patient and you are extremely nervous. And to be honest, I'm also nervous because I don't know. I don't know if you're who you say you are. So you've got your medical records. We sit down. We start the conversation. Bev, tell me, why are you here today?
1: I'm here because I've lost my provider. I was seeing the same doctor for over five years. My care was great. I was stable on my medication. And then my doctor retired unexpectedly. I didn't realize how hard it would be to find a new doctor. I've tried four other doctors. None of them will take me. I don't even know why. So I'm really frustrated and just hope that you can help me.
0: Oh my God, I'm so sorry that you had this experience. When were you at a pain center or is your primary care prescribing to you? It was a pain management doctor. Okay. And you have Crohn's disease, I see here. And you also have rheumatoid arthritis are you taking medications to manage your Crohn's disease yes yes
1: I'm on some biologics and sometimes I take prednisone also
0: all right and Bev I see that you've lost quite a bit of weight over the past few years congratulations on your weight loss it looks like you started going to the gym so right now in my mind you're a patient who has done everything they can to manage their illness right you've lost weight, which I understand, it's not easy for everybody to do so, but I'm a doctor, I need to know that you're making every effort that you can to present yourself as a healthy patient. Right, what we are saying is not anything where we're insinuating that
1: if you don't do these things that you're at fault for your illness, or that you need to get up and go to the gym, or that you need to work out every day. If you think about it, even if you get your pain medication that helps you, you always are doing self-managing things, right? There's always things that you are going to do that is going to help yourself, whether that's putting ice on a joint that hurts, or elevating your legs if they hurt, or even trying to exercise because it just doesn't work well to not do those things. I know that sounds a lot like multimodal treatment. And and I have to say, I do believe in multimodal treatment. Most people actually do it automatically. But a doctor is going to take you a lot more seriously. And this is one of the suggestions we make. If you go in there and you say, these are the, the medications I've tried. These are the non-medication treatments I've tried, whether it's walking around the block, whether it physical therapy, whatever it is, and also have a list of what you've tried that hasn't worked and what you tried that has worked. Mm -hmm. Because if you just go into the doctor's office and you just say, the only thing that works is opioids. I don't want to try anything else. I've never tried anything else and won't do it. The doctor's going to be on the defensive because to them, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. So that's important to understand.
0: Now, Once again, I'm in my make-believe pain clinic and you come to me as a, you know, a potential patient and you're a smoker. Now I've got my red flags up, right? Because don't forget, I'm afraid to prescribe. Now I'm really afraid to prescribe because you're smoking. Right. And all of these algorithms have these little things worked in. Does the patient smoke? Does the patient drink? Does the patient take a benzodiazepine? You got to quit smoking, or you've got to at least try. Show to the doctor that you've tried to quit smoking.
1: A doctor is going to be less likely to prescribe opioids to you if you smoke, if you've not tried to stop. Um, just like Claudia said, at least discuss with them. Be open to the possibility of trying to quit smoking. Don't hide it, but bring it up to them and say to them, look, I've tried or you know, I'm willing to try XYZ to try to, to stop smoking to make me less likely to have adverse effects. One of the reasons doctors are afraid is opioids do suppress respiration and smoking does the same thing. We're not judging. We're not saying... If you're a smoker, you're a horrible person and you deserve to not get pain medication. That's not what we're saying at all. We're trying to get you to see this from the doctor's point of view and what might make them more willing to prescribe to you. I asked Maya about this issue of smoking related to opioid addiction or adverse events. I've heard us speak about Maya before. She recently wrote a book on harm reduction. She is a friend to pain patients. She wrote an article about Narc's care last year that was in Wired. And her response was this. Pre-Fentanyl, most people with opioid addiction died from smoking-related illnesses, not opioid-related causes. Vaping significantly reduces smoking-related harm, so anyone who smokes should really switch if they can. So that's a really good point. If you're not willing to try to stop smoking, at least consider switching to vaping. You know, one thing we didn't mention, Claudia, and I, I want to talk about this is should you record your doctor's appointment? And should you bring somebody with you in 38 states? They're called one party states. That means only one of you needs to know that you're recording. So legally, you're allowed to record. Here's the problem. A lot of doctors are now not allowing it. So it might be in your pain contract. It might be on a sign on the wall that says, if you record this appointment, you will be dismissed. So I know even some insurance companies suggest that patients record an appointment because I think the studies show that people forget 80% of what they're told in an appointment. So it's always a good thing to record if you're allowed to. But when insurance companies suggest it or other people suggest it, they always suggest telling the doctor first. Again, we can't tell you whether you should or shouldn't record. The only time I highly recommend it is if you've already been to a doctor that's abusive, you know they're going to be abusive again. Then we would be more likely to say, yes, definitely record and keep it hidden um, in the states that it's legal to. But for an initial appointment, I would just say, if you can bring someone with you, do. Although I have to say, I did see someone get dismissed one time because they brought someone with them and the doctor felt that means they didn't trust them. For an initial appointment, if you want to record and ask the doctor if it's okay to, I wouldn't say anything like, I need to record this to make sure that you're not nasty to me. I would just always approach things like, is it okay if I record this appointment? I have a lot of doctor's appointments. I want to remember everything that's being said. Is this something that's okay with you? And right away that could
0: kind of build a rapport with the provider. Yeah, You know, I see people, if they're in the hospital, they're recording what's happening with the hospitalist and and the person who's recording is really disrespectful. I don't like that. So stay cool. Just stay cool. These doctors are under an immense amount of pressure. So once again, we're playing good cop, bad cop. So you're going to be asked probably to sign a narcotic agreement, a pain contract, right? which I don't agree or disagree with. But once again, I own a pain clinic and I'm going to do everything that I can to protect myself. Pay attention to that pain clinic, because if you are using Kratom as a supplement, you could be discharged from pain management. If you are using THC or CBD, you could be discharged. Ask the doctor, can I use Kratom? Can I drink alcohol? Can I use CBD? Can I use THC? Can I continue to smoke? Because look at the fine print. You could be discharged for using all of those supplements.
1: I don't agree with discharging someone because they smoke. I don't agree with discharging someone because I ate a glass of wine or um, if they do or, or don't take Kratom. I don't agree with those things. But like Claudia said, it's really, really important to know what's in your pain contract. Don't just sign it read it. If you have any questions, discuss it with your doctor, ask them these questions. Again, assume good intentions. Don't do it in a combative way. I promise you, if you go into an appointment already on the defensive, and I understand why it's like that, right? I mean, I'm terrified when I see a doctor, even when I've seen for years, because I've been so traumatized. So I'm not saying it doesn't make sense for you to be scared and angry and and nervous and all of the above. But one of the best things we can tell you to do, is go in there to the best of your ability with a calm cool demeanor don't go in attacking the doctor don't go in immediately sobbing and that's a hard one because i when i get really upset and angry i cry too but try your best not to go in there sobbing hysterically and yelling and and screaming because these things are all going to be red flags to the doctor And like Claudia said, very few doctors are going to prescribe to you on the first appointment. So don't go in assuming that you're going to get um, a prescription. I have seen it happen. So just do your best to remain calm. Don't be overly emotional if it's possible. As Claudia said before, realize that the doctor is probably as afraid as you are. These doctors... Patients are terrorized. Doctors are being terrorized, too. If you listen to the Ron Chapman interview that we did, they're really held to to the standard that is impossible. I mean, doctors are made to be paranoid they're they're getting it from all sides i mean i know my state has a patient abandonment like my state medical board has a patient abandonment rule that they're not allowed to abandon patients but then you have if a doctor is prescribing a certain amount that they're going to get investigated so it's like what are they supposed to do so just the fact that this doctor took you as a patient to me means that maybe they're one of the good ones that they're going to try to help you
0: What happens if the first urine drug test comes back, something that's in your system or not in your system? So if you have been taking benzodiazepines, and even if you stop 45, 60 days ago because you were cut off, let the doctor know, look, I was taking this benzodiazepine. Two months ago, and I you've got to know because if that comes up in my specimen, I don't want that to be used against me. Because that's the only word I can think of. It's everything is being used against the patient. Yeah. And also be mindful, once again, you could be discharged for drinking alcohol. The doctors are testing your urine to see where the metabolites are. And and that's another confusing issue, but we're gonna take on another guest and we're going to discuss at length. metabolites, false, false negatives, and the whole other. And it's
1: important if you have like, I know, there's one patient that I've um, tried to help get medical records in my state, and she was actually dismissed due to in the mail, they said that she had crystal meth in her urine, which turned out to be because she takes like a weight loss drug that can trigger an amphetamine positive. But this doctor didn't give her any chance to defend herself. He didn't even respond to her. He didn't let her retell. If that's the case, if you've been dismissed for a reason like that, have all of that information with you. Look into it if you can. Get the results of the urine screen from the doctor, from the lab. You know, if you need help looking at it to see why something would have happened, you can always send it to us. We are not healthcare professionals, but we do work with some Advocate with some doctors who are that sometimes they are willing to look at it just kind of for an opinion to see why, but just always have all your information set, remain calm, bring a list of all your medications, bring a list of everything you've tried, everything you've tried that's worked, everything you've tried that hasn't worked, assume good intentions. Now, let's talk about this whole concept of whether you're willing to try something. Right. We have some patients that have been absolutely terrorized, forced to take steroid injections every few months in order to get, you know, a few pills a month, forced to get a spinal cord stimulator just to get a few pills a month. So there's some people who have tried absolutely everything. But there are some patients who have been in in pain management for 15 years, and they've never really, the doctor never really asked them to try anything else, and they really haven't tried anything else. And for whatever reason, the doctor dismissed them, or the doctor retired, or, or one of those reasons. So if that's the case, keep an open mind. Do your best to keep an open mind. If the doctor says, hey... Would you be willing to try X, Y, and Z? Now, I understand if something financially you can't afford it, insurance doesn't cover it. That's a different story, and you need to tell them that. But if it's something that's simple that you can actually do self-managing, if you can take a walk around the block if possible once a day, if they're saying just try this, just be willing to try it because honestly, you don't know if it can help, and and often with your opioids doing something like that can make can can make the opioids even more uh, beneficial for you and that it could work better. So it's always important to keep an open mind. Another thing that we've come across often, I think Claudia, is we hear from a lot of patients who've actually never had a good like workup from their pain doctor. Do you find that often also Claudia that they just don't they don't have imaging and they don't have any kind of full workup?
0: Well, I'm not taking on a patient if they don't have a primary care physician, because I'm afraid and I need to know that your uh, diabetes is being managed with a primary care physician. So as a pain management clinic owner, you've got to have a primary care physician, Uh, you've got to take all the medications that you need to live your best life, And, and that may be managing your blood pressure and your diabetes. So once again, I'm looking to, I only want to take on patients who are willing to follow all the rules to protect the patient and to protect myself. So you've got to have that primary care physician. Now, if you're a back pain sufferer, I need to see your latest imaging, your CAT scan, your MRI. Uh, I need to see all of that. Now, if you go to an interventional pain doctor, you've got to remember, they make their money, their bread and butter is injection. Always expect to be forced to get these injections, a pain stimulator, and all the other alternatives to opioids. I refer to those as garbage because most of our people, they've exhausted all of the alternatives. Absolutely. So if you go to interventional pain, prepare yourself. They're not just going to write a script. They don't make any money writing scripts. The reimbursement's like $60 compared to several hundred, six, $700 just to perform one injection. Now, if you've exhausted all the alternatives, the nerve ablation, the spinal cord stimulator, the uh, trigger point, if you've exhausted all of it, don't go to an interventional pain doctor. Go to A physiatrist, go to a PM&R, pain medicine, physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. Try those. They're difficult to find. Also, try to find a concierge. They're they're not cheap because you're going to pay a membership.
1: This was a well thought out plan that they had, these anti opioid zealots, this opioid elimination industry. It's like they attacked it at every level, right? So, manufacturers aren't going to want to make opioids anymore. Distributors aren't going to want to distribute them. Doctors aren't going to want to prescribe them. Pharmacies aren't going to want to fill them, even if they can get the medication into the pharmacy. And insurance companies can deny them. So, We have so much that we're up against as patients. It's so difficult. And this is why I want to make sure you understand. I'm not saying any of what we're suggesting that you do is easy. It's so hard. We're so beaten up. We're so exhausted. So many patients are just traumatized. This one patient I asked on Facebook how they felt about finding a new doctor And they said to me, no matter what I do or say, no matter how many hoops I jump through, these doctors answer only to the DOJ, DHS, and their care system. Patients are not their priority and surely pain patients aren't. I'm exhausted and traumatized. I want you to know that we completely understand you have every right to be angry and scared and traumatized. The suggestions we're giving you are not even ones because we agree with the way it has to be. It's just we're giving you the facts of of these are the things that might give you the best chance of having a good outcome. You know, we talked about being willing to have a new workup, being willing to do new imaging if you need to. Let's talk about number of diagnoses. So I think that this is just my opinion from observing. Pain patients seem to think that the more they list uh, uh, the things that are painful conditions for them, the more likely a doctor is going to be to prescribe. And it is of my opinion that the opposite may be true. If you have 30 pain diagnoses, don't list them all. Don't, don't, if the doctor says, what are the things that are hurting you? What's the reason for you being in pain? I mean, I would speak to your main illness. Like for me, it would be Crohn's disease. I do sometimes mention psoriatic arthritis also. If I have kidney stones, I will mention that if I'm at a doctor and they're saying, you know, what's your everyday health condition? I'm not even going to say chronic kidney stones, because if I'm not dealing with them at the moment, I just think throwing all of these diagnoses out causes a doctor to kind of sit back and be like, okay, this is just a bit much and a bit overwhelming. And then you might be dismissed just for being too complicated or complex. There's one other thing that It seems to be that there are certain illnesses that the medical community, especially younger doctors, look at as almost mental illness, right? Like fibromyalgia is one of them. It is not a mental illness. It is a definite physical illness. But for whatever reason, if you say you have fibromyalgia, sometimes that automatically is going to trigger something in a doctor's mind that it's in your head and you should never get opioids because it is one of those things that these zealots have spoken about that should never get opioids. So if you have something like lupus and fibromyalgia, my suggestion, and again, we're not healthcare professionals, but my suggestion would be just stick with lupus if a doctor's asking you what's your main pain condition. That's just my suggestion. What do you think about that, Claudia?
0: Yeah, when I take somebody to pain management and they give me 27 conditions, yeah. I said, can, can we stick with Crohn's disease? Can, let's just stick with the, the big kahuna. Let's not pepper the conversation with every chronic painful disease, because as a provider, I don't want a complicated patient. So I say stick with the big illness, stay away from the fibro conversation, but some people only have fibro. right? And some people have Ehlers-Danlos and even Ehlers-Danlos. It's widely misunderstood. And these poor people, they're gaslit. The young providers just on TikTok, like, no, all of a sudden, since the the CDC published the guideline, no pain ever exists. And intraculatin (laughs) is like, oh, wait till they die off. Well, what's going to happen when all the pain patients die off? Nobody's going to be born sick. Right. When- and, I mean, there
1: was even an article, I'll try to find it to link for you guys, but there was even an article one time suggesting that chronic pain be listed as a psychiatric condition, you know, and I think that they really believe it is there are these new studies coming out or they're talking about these new studies that I find so highly unethical about using placebos for chronic pain patients in this study. I, like I just don't understand this whole concept that chronic pain is in your head because it really isn't. And that leads me to another another point that I want to tell you. Chronic pain just that term in and of itself can be a red flag. Right now, you know they they talk about there being a few different types of chronic pain and one that they're pushing that they're talking about a lot is this hyper oversensitization? And they they say it's with things like fibro, and they 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 list it like migraines, and they they list a few other conditions. I think like IBS and trigeminal neuralgia and some other things. And they kind of throw it all together to say basically there's nothing actually physically wrong with you. You know your volume is turned up too much in your brain and so you're experiencing the pain at a higher rate even though there's nothing wrong and this is what they're talking about is chronic pain you know a lot of us we don't fit that category at all Crohn's disease it's an actual thing that has physical damage and and most of you with back pain you your back you have so many like rods and pins and stuff in your back and crps you can physically see your your limb turning red and purple and you know feeling hot and i just don't think that it's as common as they say it is but they want everyone to think that when someone has chronic pain it really isn't something that's really wrong with them and so we can kind of push them off and and send them to someone else so i wouldn't even necessarily use the term chronic pain to be honest I would say on relenting pain or like for me I would say like intermittent acute pain something like that because honestly just the term chronic pain could be its own red flag and there's something else that I want to talk about with this so for us it's so easy to say well when I took this medication my pain was better and to them that's a red flag I know it sounds so ridiculous because you're telling them what the facts are but to them that's a red flag for whatever reason they decided that pushing for pain reduction shouldn't be a goal that only increased function should be a goal right so and these people make this stuff up they based it on the CDC guidelines they they decided that in order for something to be considered effective it has to reduce pain by 30% an increased function by 30% based on some random study, I think by Von Corf, I think it was in Sweden or something for low back pain, but of course it was applied to everything. And so, you know, they're looking for that 30% increase in function, 30% decrease in pain. So when a doctor asks you, when you were getting your medication, when you were getting XYZ, when you felt like your symptoms were better managed, how did that affect you? So instead of just saying my pain was better, focus on what you could do when you were able to do it. Like, I was able to sit up with my family. I was able to cook dinner. I was able to take my kid to the park. I was able to work. I was able to be going out with friends. I was able to clean my house. Those things are going to mean a lot more to a doctor than just saying my pain was better. Because to them, and and I think this is unfair too, to us, I could be stuck in bed and sick with a pain of eight, or I could be stuck in bed and sick with a pain of five. And obviously the pain of five would be better. But to them, they think that's no improvement because your function isn't better. So just focus on your words, realize you need to talk about function, things you were able to do. And- kind of keep in mind that 30%. So, you know, if, if it really did help you make sure um, that you're discussing function improving 30% in addition to pain
0: decreasing 30%. Yeah, something else that could be useful is keep a pain journal for uh, the back sufferers. Keep a pain journal. Well, Dr. Doctor- during the morning my pain was at a nine and then when I was able to receive the medication after I took my medication my pain reduced down to a four uh, but since I've lost my medication you know I, I don't have the quality of life I used to so a pain journal can also be handy and, and once again right you could actually be Documented as a drug seeker for knowing your illness too well.
1: Yeah, if you listen to our, we did a um, drug seeking red flag episode, and uh, it's it's so it's comical, except it's true. So it's not really funny, but every single thing is a red flag. Whether you are crying or too calm or dressed well or not dressed well enough, um, whether you're able to sit on your phone or you're not able to even look at your phone, it's all considered a red flag. But I do want to say. One thing I've repeatedly heard doctors say, and I heard it again in a podcast yesterday, that if you're sitting there playing Candy Crush, there's no way you could be in pain. Um, And it happened to me one time when I was in the emergency room, I was texting my husband to tell him that they were admitting me and the doctor came in and was like, well, how can you be in pain if you're on your phone? We spoke to a patient one time, I think it was in Washington, that they were late getting her the results. Um, And so she was looking on her MyChart thing while she was in the ER looking to see if the results came in. And they came in and scolded her that she couldn't be in pain. So my suggestion is leave your phone in your bag. Don't even look at your phone. Um, I asked some people on, on Twitter and on Facebook it, what suggestions they have for other patients. And this person gave something that I definitely want to talk about. They said, I try to encourage everyone to never disclose any childhood trauma or abuse, any past crime victimization, including sexual assault, never admit to family history of alcohol or drug abuse. Answer no to all of these questions because in the eyes of the doctors, these increase your likelihood to become addicted. So let's talk about that for a few minutes, Claudia, because this is something that we've discussed somewhat frequently. Because of the opioid risk tool, because there was a question on there about sexual abuse, and it only had to do with women, for whatever reason, they've taken that and they've kind of run with it. So we do want to say this, it's not something I'm saying you should be ashamed of at all. I'm just saying If you need help, if you've been sexually abused, if you were raped and you need to talk to a counselor, go talk to your counselor. I don't see in this climate, the reason to have to tell your pain doctor that you've been sexually abused. So yes, we are recommending that you're not honest about that. It's just one of those things that they're going to look at. And we have a whole list of patients who've been denied opioids because they were sexually abused. It's what happened to me. This is what got me into advocating to begin with. So it's not that I'm telling people to hide something. I just think Unless you're speaking to the doctor because you need help for that, I just don't see the reason to have to talk about it. And we are going to have an episode about ACEs, adverse childhood event scores, opioid risk tool, all of these things that we're talking about here we're going to speak to. In its own episode, to to kind of explain that to you a little better, it's also the same thing with mental health diagnoses. Um, I just spoke to someone the other day who had a high NARCS care score. Um, We're doing an episode on that soon also. And she doesn't even take daily opioids. So most likely it's because she had several mental health diagnoses. So we're not telling you to lie about your mental health diagnoses. But if you tell the doctor, I'm so depressed, I can't get out of bed, I can't stop crying, I just can't even function if I don't have opioids, that's not gonna convince the doctor to give you pain medication. It's just, it's gonna have the opposite effect of what you think. Get the help you need from your doctor who's gonna give you the help when it comes to your mental health. But I wouldn't really bring it up unless they ask you about it. And even if they do, I would just say something like, I'm working with this provider and they're helping me manage it.
0: Yeah, you know, the truth is like makeup. Less is more when yeah. going to a pain management visit. And this isn't medical advice, folks. This is for you to receive however you receive our advice. You can only make the best decision for yourself. We're yeah. just sharing with you what's worked for us. You know, when I first went to pain management years ago, I i mean, I was sick when I first found my way to pain management. I mean, I had dark circles under my eyes. I was always in the hospital. I had, I was on, I don't know, Remicade. And eventually I would find methotrexate. And eventually I would find physical therapy twice a week, which I'm fortunate that I can afford to do physical therapy twice a week. And and I think if you can participate in physical therapy, that's something else that, that's really, really helpful. And not everybody can. And and that's something that should be free at this point, because that was part of this, all of this opioid free, uh, you know, the alternatives that should include physical therapy for free, nobody should be paying for it if they've been robbed of their opioids. So that's something else for people to consider. And
1: if, you know, for me, I have to pay a pretty high copay for physical therapy. So and I can't afford to go twice a week, I just can't. So the times that I've needed to have it, I did this and I suggest doing this go to one or two appointments if you can afford it. Tell them you're not going to be able to afford more appointments. Get a list of the exercises. Have them teach you what you can do for your specific condition. And tell the doctor you can't afford to go repeatedly, but that you are happy to know what the exercises are so you will try to do them at home. Like we said before, anything you're willing to try at home that the doctor sees you're willing to try, that that, you know, one of the things that these people say, Lenke and Kalani and all of these people, part of their narrative is that we are so selfish and we are not willing to help ourselves. And we go in and demand the doctor to fix everything for us. And when they don't, we get angry and we start off, you know, with a tantrum. And that's actually not what's happening at all. But we want to be able to show them that's not what we're doing at all. We don't expect them to fix it. Go in there with the concept that you're a team, like let's work on this together. Let's see what we can do together to um, figure out a way to make things more
0: manageable.
1: Uh, and, and just go in there being willing to do what, the, what they ask you to do if it's within reason. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you have Medicare, if you're on disability now and you're paying that $170 a month and you now participate in one of those Medicare Advantage plans, uh, some of those plans include the cost of a gym membership for free. So you can, yes. if you can't make it to physical therapy, you can tell the doctor, well, you know why I, I, while I had my act, while I had opiates, I was able to go to the gym and do the exercises that the physical therapist gave to me. Uh, and I could do those exercises at the gym. So we're just, you know, just try to keep an open mind.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was able to do. I, I couldn't afford a gym for myself, but I realized, um, I think you must've told me to look at my insurance. And it did cover it, and it really has uh, made a difference for me, for sure. There's, there's something else we talked we haven't mentioned yet about something not to do that the doctor may consider a red flag. Sometimes, and again, we're not telling you to lie, but sometimes if you give too many details... It's more of a problem. You know, we do have patients, and I totally understand it. We've had patients tell us that, you know, they were cut down from, I don't know, 90 MME to two five milligram Vicin in a day, right? So 10 milligrams a day in two doses. And you've told me, well, I take them both, like I take the day's worth, two pills at one time in the morning so that I have more relief. And if I took them separately, I wouldn't. Don't go in there telling the doctor that. Just don't. And I'm not telling you to lie. I'm not telling you if you're taking an amount that's dangerous, that can hurt yourself. I'm not saying to hide that. I wouldn't tell them that, you know, your mom had extra pain medication from surgery that she let you use to get through the
0: day. I just, I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't. Oh my God, no. I would die. Listen, if I took a person to pain management and they said something like that, I would probably leave. But, Bev, a lot of this is people have to use their common sense.
1: Right. I think that people think if they keep giving more details, if they keep giving more reasons to be in pain, more evidence that they've been mistreated, more things to show that they're undermedicated, that the doctor's going to be more willing to give them pain medication. But I, I really think it's the opposite. Look at it from their point of view. They're going to look at things like that as a red flag. Sometimes they should look at it as a red flag. You know, they they have to be so careful. A doctor is never going to be able to prevent diversion 100%. As long as there's ever prescribing in this country, there will be some level of diversion. And that's something that it's not really fair to a doctor that the DEA holds them responsible for it. But they do. They really, really do. So, you know, there's no way if a doctor knows that you've given a pain pill away or that you've taken extra medication or any of that, there's no way they're going to prescribe to you because it just puts them in danger even if they feel like they want to help you, which I, I think a lot of times doctors just feel stuck. I think they want to help. They feel so bad, but they just, they're afraid. And they're afraid for a reason. You know, it, it's they, it's not just their license. It's, it's, you know, their freedom. They can go to prison for 20 years. And so, you know, just keep that in mind that the doctor really, I do believe a doctor can be putting their, th- themselves at risk if they prescribe to you and you've told them that, you know, you've taken extra or that you've sold it or, or any of that. So just keep, keep those things in mind when you're talking to the doctor.
0: So Bev, this was really helpful information for our listeners. And like Bev said, she's going to have everything in the show notes. Bev, do you have a summary of uh, what to do and what not to do leading up to the visit while you're in the visit? Yes, and we're just going to go through these quickly since we touched on them throughout.
1: But just so you have a summary of it, step one, always have your medical records, always carry them with you. Step two, figure out ahead of time if you want to bring someone with you and if you want to record some things to do. Bring a list of all your medications, everything you've tried, everything that's worked and hasn't worked. Always assume good intentions. Don't go in there combative. Don't go in there assuming the doctor is going to be nasty to you. And do your best to remain calm. It's so hard. It's so hard to not be emotional, but it really is necessary. Realize the doctor is probably as afraid of this as you are. Always be willing to try other things. Bring imaging if you have it. Um, And if you don't, be willing to get imaging if that's what they ask for. Also, bring a list of goals for function, things that you would like to do if you were able to to live a better life. And be willing to have a full workup. If you haven't had one in a long time, be willing to do that. Uh, And then some things not to do that we've touched on. Don't tell the doctor you've sold or borrowed or gone to the street taken more than you've needed to. Don't lose your temper. Don't sit there on your phone. Don't say your pain is 12 out of 10 and don't list 75 pain conditions. Try to stick with the one. Don't admit to sexual abuse or assault unless you are going to that doctor for help for that situation. That's one thing I do. I have to say that I have told people to lie about to the pain doctor uh, because it could cause them to not give you uh, pain medication.
0: All right. These are really helpful tips. And we hope our listeners, once again, you can only make these decisions on your own. Uh, And Bev, I have to mention something that's so, so important for people to know Please never share your personal information or medical records online with anyone. Some of our listeners have sent us urine drug tests that they were told they failed. And we always ask people to please black out your personal information. Never share your personal information. Your information is worth more than gold to an online predator.
1: And Claudia, I want to add to that. We repeatedly, like every day, we find more fake social media profiles in your name. We just found a new TikTok account, Claudia Mirandi. There's a face, fake Facebook page, uh, Claudia Mirandi. There's many fake Twitter profiles in the name of our organization. There's a fake email account in the name of our organization. So we ri- want to remind you, we have Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com, Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. There's two legitimate TikTok accounts and I'll put them in the show notes so you know what they are. If anyone reaches out to you and you think it's us, Please email us at our email addresses and ask us. Do not send any of these accounts. Don't send us on a social media direct message any information about yourself. Just don't. Always send it to the email address Bev at the Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. We're just telling you this to protect yourself. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at Bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or Claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Dr. Patient Forum podcast.